Welcome to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. Here's where I want to start. I've decided to basically engage in a little social experiment here, and I've decided to put the podcast on YouTube. I don't like YouTube, all of their censorship and whatnot, and of course their history of eliminating platforms, but given the fact that the show is not huge, and of course I just put it on YouTube, so I don't expect there to be any subscribers or followers or even clicks or listens, we'll see how far the actual show goes on YouTube and how long it actually lasts before I start getting particular strikes. I'm going to keep saying what I'm saying. I'm not going to stop saying what I'm saying, but I'm just throwing it up there just to see what if. So we'll see how long it lasts. Again, usually the larger channels with the bigger following, uh, certainly with saying a number of different things, which usually have to do with the truth. It'll only be a matter of time, I suppose, before, of course, they get taken down, as is pretty much the pattern from a historic perspective. But we'll see what happens. Either way, if you're interested in listening to the show on YouTube, that's now available. I know a lot of people listen to it again on Rumble and, of course, all the audio streaming platforms, which is really the gist of the whole show. So either way, It is on YouTube now, and we'll see how long that lasts. I'm not expecting long, but then again, like I said, it's not a huge program here, so we shall see either way. Okay, just wanted to make mention of that. Also, I received this email from a listener of the show, and thank you for sending sending this to me. I'll include it in the description below. But first of all, if you're curious, um, Dr. Robin McCutcheon was on the Dangerous Info podcast the other day, on Monday, Monday evening. And I want to say about an hour and 30 minutes in, give or take, uh, the Rumble feed just ended up going down totally. So she was bringing up a great deal of things regarding the history of Jewish influence, but more importantly, the history of the, uh, the Jewish lineage across Europe and Russia and the Mediterranean and the Kazarian Mafia and the whole thing. And it was very well done. And then just like that, uh, again, Rumble pulled the entire feed, and the whole feed went down, and that was it. So you talk too much about them, look what happens. They all get on their horn, and they say, shut it down, and sure enough, it gets shut down. So I don't know if that's the first time that that's ever happened with uh, Jesse James's show, but it was interesting nonetheless to have that occur. So here's what a listener of the show has sent me. What they sent me was, is they sent me a, a, a YouTube link, which, which frankly is an excellent video. It's very thorough, and uh, the presenter does a great, great job. But the title of the video is called Kazarian Mafia, the God Eaters. What I'm going to do is I'm going to link that in the description below. Of course, I can't link anything on the YouTube channel yet, but I can link it in all the other platforms. So I highly recommend giving that a listen and giving that a watch. It's probably, again, it's it's just over an hour long, but it's very well done. So... Again, I will link that in the description below, and again, it's titled The Kazarian Mafia, or just Kazarian Mafia, The God Eaters. Uh, Just a fantastic history and a lineage history of the entire thing also. So there you go. Okay, here's where I want to start. There's been a great deal of education-related things occurring here this week, and frankly, it almost seems like the entire business is being attacked from every conceivable angle, which I personally love. I think it's fantastic. Uh, One of the other things, of course, that's taking place, too, is that numerous individuals in the business are putting their foots in their mouths and looking more foolish with every passing day. 
And there's also more dialogue, in particular online having to do, again, with pulling your children out and why are we paying all these school taxes and they're producing nothing and it's a brainwashing camp and so on and so on. And I fully understand that that's always existed, but for some reason this past week it's all sort of come to a head, which I think is rather interesting, and it's certainly ramping up. At least these are some of the trends that I'm noticing in some of the language that's being used. But I want to start with this. This is making the rounds online uh, rather frequently here. We have another tweet here from Randy Weingarten. The, uh, I, I think she's the former head of the NEA at this point, if I'm not mistaken, certainly the National Teachers Union to some extent. But here's what she tweeted out. She tweeted out, quote, what's behind the increase in homeschooling? Now, for her to make a statement like that, immediately you know that whatever excuse she pulls out of her hat is going to be, of course, the hard left-wing nonsense that that most of us have heard it's going to be race this race that poverty this poverty that uh you know inequality and and so on and so forth well that's exactly what ended up happening she linked an article from axios which is not credible by any stretch of the imagination and the article is remarkably embarrassing and of course that's the title of the article what's behind the increase in homeschooling and this is written by a serene Habashian, if I'm getting that right, don't know, don't care. And I'm going to read through this because, again, it's short, but it's very embarrassing. And none of this is really factually accurate. So here's what it says. It says, homeschooling in the United States shot up during the pandemic. There was no pandemic. And it appears to be here to stay. Yes. It says, the big picture, homeschooling is now the fastest growing form of education in the United States per a Washington Post analysis. It says the report, which covers more than 60% of the American school-age population, found that an increase in homeschooled children born from the pandemic restrictions continued through the 22-23 school year. Again, you've heard me say time and time again, this is a ball that gets kicked down the hill and you don't get it back. No one goes into a homeschooling environment and starts to learn on their own and then returns to the machine. The brick-and-mortar machine, it doesn't work that way. Again, once, once you don't have puppet strings on you and you're unplugged from the matrix or starting to unplug from the matrix, very rarely do you go back. In fact, it almost never happens. It continues, they said yes, but homeschooling in general represents a single-digit percentage of students nationally. David S. Knight, an assistant professor of education, finance, and policy at the University of Washington, told Axios. Again, Rather interesting claim there, and then interesting ties to a, a far-left state and a far-left university and a far-left uh, outlet here. So we know where they're going with this. It says, by the numbers, there are currently an estimated 1.9 million to 2.7 million homeschooled students in the United States per the Post's report. Zoom in. There are a wide variety of reasons why families are choosing to try homeschooling and stick with it from political and religious reasons to avoiding unsafe situations. Again, the irony of this article coming out this week too, or within the last couple of days, is that every single thing that's going on right now in the field of education points to all of this being 100% accurate as to why all of the people are really leaving. Now, they provide other ridiculous reasons and examples here, which are untrue, 
but students are getting killed on on school campuses. This is happening. Violent attacks are up. Uh, these environments are always politically charged and for no reason whatsoever, and inaccurately so, I might add. And, uh, and, and that's just always been the landscape, unfortunately, and as we know, it's getting worse. So here's what they said. Uh, let's see. Their first bullet point was this. They said, quote, the initial set of folks who come to homeschooling during the pandemic largely did so because Zoom school, quote unquote, was a complete and total failure for them and their families. Jen Garrison Stuber, advocacy chair for the Washington Homeschool Organization, told Axios. Well, that's partially true. The online environment that the K-12 schools public, private, or charter set up for their students was embarrassing. It was embarrassing because A, they didn't know what they were doing. B, they didn't think to reach out to someone like a university setting to explain, have them explain to them what it actually is supposed to look like. That was really the larger point. And then I would say C, the third reason, is simply because they couldn't keep track of any attendance and they were openly telling their students that they weren't going to grade any of the material. This, of course, happened in the late spring of 2020, right through the entire fall semester of 2020. And then unfortunately, that's when students started to come back to school and they were forced to wear masks and a thousand other things. It continues here. It says, the following year, when schools resumed in-person classes, some of the parents who only came to homeschooling out of desperation no longer had a fear of making that transition or of interacting with their children's education, she explained. See what I mean? This is true, again, because of the simple reason that once you wake up out of the matrix, you don't go back to sleep. Parents realized that it's not difficult. Parents realized that the propaganda of homeschooling has always been propaganda. The negativity surrounding it has always been propaganda, that you don't have to lean over their shoulder on a day-in and day-out basis, hour-in, hour-out basis, and explain things to them and guide them through every single thing that they are learning, in particular using abeka.com. That's not the way that it works. They need to be left alone. They need to be left alone to figure things out on their own, and that's how you find a more independent individual, and they start to figure that out on themselves and for themselves. The last bullet point for this particular section was, the benefits of homeschooling in include being able to meet your child at his or her level for each individual subject. Stuber explained. Then they said state of play. Homeschooling rates have increased across race groups and ethnicities. There were three bullet points with this. They said that there are black families who say they turned to homeschooling in order to keep their children away from school from the school to prison pipeline, Stuber said. I have no doubt about that. I have absolutely no doubt about that. In fact, my recollection back then in 2020 was that you did see a split. You saw a number of different families, in particular minority families, saying, we can't, we can't keep our kids here all, all the time. They have to go back to school. They fully understood that the school system was basically a daycare, and they knew that, and they were taking advantage of that. On the flip side of that coin, because there's always a flip side, is that many of them said, look, they're healthier-minded staying at home. They're not having to, again, 
sink their face into these workbooks, so to speak, on a day in and day out basis, and it's exhausting them, and then they have no energy left in the day. So they were seeing again firsthand what happens when you learn in a more healthier environment without distraction. And this again was one of the things that really does help bring down the system is you end up with quote unquote special education students, so the parents have been told. And then they end up leaving the school environment, going home, learning at home, and all of the sudden, presto changeo, they're not special education anymore. Isn't that odd? Isn't it odd that when they are on their own, thinking by themselves in a quiet environment, hopefully a quiet environment, they have the ability again to think. And they have the ability to reason, hopefully, and investigate particular things, as I've said before. Again, the special education lie is such a massive con, and it really is just a, a, a giant money laundering scheme, and it's, it's slavery. It's just, it's just slavery. It's not even borderline slavery. It is slavery. It's designed to trick people into thinking that they need government's help all of the time, and they don't. It continues here. It says, families of color and those with religious affiliations seeking to avoid bullying and racism. It's possible. That's possible. It says there are also families who pull their trans kids out of school to avoid an unhealthy situation where they feel threatened, Stuber said. Now, this is where it's starting to take a turn. Okay? I have no doubt that that is true to some extent. We know that, quote-unquote, the brainwashed trannies, we know that they homeschool also. We know that parents homeschool those particular kids, again, and continue to brainwash them in the home into believing that they're a gender that they are not. This is a real thing. However, the trend with this article is a dangerous one because what the left is seeking to do, the proverbial left, so to speak, is they're trying to take credit for the increase in homeschooling. And they're trying to, of of course, continue to victimize the students who are now homeschooling who are on the proverbial left or so they you know they think that they represent on the left blacks trannies so on and so forth and i do believe again that they're trying to do this in order to take credit they're trying to say hey look the reason that we're homeschooling is because we're always victimized in the brick and mortar environment and that's for, that that's why the increase in homeschooling needs to occur so we all need to homeschool also if that really ends up being their their take and their approach in this entire in this entire movement which is a permanent movement this is a movement that's not going to take its foot off the gas this is going to continue but if that's the approach that they're actually going to take they're going to be the ones also responsible for collapsing the brick and mortar system and i don't think they understand that and i love it If they want to keep trying to take credit for it by saying that they're all victims in the brick-and-mortar environment because our tranny students can't be trannies the way that they want to be trannies and, you know, there's rampant racism in the American K-12 school system in the brick-and-mortar buildings, and that's why we're leaving. If they want to continue to believe that, great. Great. It's just going to drop enrollment even further, even though, again, you're typically in the minority, but it's going to drop enrollment even further, which is going to make these schools more insolvent. I'm all for it. But this, however, is where the article takes a turn, and they basically say it too. It says the following, and this is laughable. It says the other side, 
It says, homeschooling can prevent children from learning about and being exposed to other kids from different backgrounds, Knight pointed out. Well, there's a flip side of that coin too, and that depends on how you interpret that. Do students leave the brick-and-mortar school system because they want to stay away from dangerous people? Yes. Is that normal? Yes. It most certainly is. Brick-and-mortar schools are dangerous. The reason that it's called a prison or a school-to-prison pipeline is because of the similarities between the two environments. If they didn't design the environments the same way, then you wouldn't have the school-to-prison pipeline the way that you do. You wouldn't have the school-to-poverty pipeline the way that it is. But be, there are just too many similarities. Everything right down to the architecture of the buildings themselves. Bell ringing, standing in line, sitting, sitting where you're told to sit. Uh, eating when you're told to eat, sitting next to people that you don't like. It's gen pop and, uh, and, and the cafeteria of a prison. It's, it, it's always been that way. It will always be that way, unfortunately, unless you leave, of course. There's a few bullet points with this one, and it says the following, quote, While public schools are held accountable for meeting student outcome standards and have requirements to teach social studies curriculum, and civil, I'm sorry, and civic engagement. It says, quote, none of that is true for homeschooling, he added. <laughs> and that's where he loses the plot. He couldn't be more wrong. He couldn't be more wrong. This right here again should show everybody the divide that the American K-12 school system seeks to have between the child and the family. It's the family that is supposed to be teaching, quote-unquote, social studies. It is the family that is supposed to be teaching civic engagement, or civility, we'll just say. That's supposed to come from the family and the parents. That's the way it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be government. Because as we know, government's interpretation of that is that you need to question your parents, question your family all of the time, and do what government tells you. That's their goal, always has been. Trust government, not your parents. It continues with the next bullet point. It says there are also other challenges that present themselves, quote, when it comes to this fracturing of educational experiences and common experiences. Stephen Aguilar, a assistant professor of education at the University of Southern California, told Axios. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean when they're talking about it presents problems regarding fracturing of educational experiences and common experiences? There is nothing common about the American K-12 school system. There's nothing common about it. That was my earliest memory of the American K-12 school system was how uncommon and unnatural it was and is still to this day. That hasn't changed. But again, government and the people who advocate for this kind of indoctrination, they're trying to tell people that it's common, that this is the educational experience. No, it is not. It is not. The last bullet point with this particular section says, among them are the absence of mandated reports when a student isn't in a traditional classroom, the lack of measures of a student's progress and the introduction to certain concepts, 
Aguilar said. The interesting part about this, again, is that he's advocating for government consistently tracking and categorizing the life of a child and the life of a student. Life is not supposed to be categorized like that. We aren't supposed to be tracked and then stuck into a, a particular slot, you know, on a spectrum and then be categorized by that slot that the system puts us in our entire lives. Because once you graduate, that all goes away. Once you graduate from high school, the illusion disappears and then you're forced to examine reality and the harsh reality that does exist after graduating from high school. Problem is, is if you go straight into college, you're back, you're, you're right back into that, that illusion. You're right back into the matrix all over again. Unless, of course, you utilize online education, which is what I've said, because you have a better chance of experiencing the realities of life while also studying at the exact same time. But again, these are the people that want you in the system from cradle to grave. It then says, meanwhile, there are families who have kids with developmental disabilities choosing homeschooling because schools aren't always able to provide their children with the services that best suit their needs. That's hilarious because the exact opposite is true. More times than not, the families who have children with developmental disabilities are always begging the American K-12 school system to help them. They can't, they can't for the life of them see a life without the American K-12 school system clinging on to them as tightly as humanly possible. They need them, so they think. But like I said at the top of this, just because a child has paperwork, quote-unquote, and just because they're categorized as perhaps special ed or needing test accommodations or whatever it may be, doesn't mean that they do. In many, in many cases, they just need the chains and the puppet strings taken off of them, and then they can start to actually realize their true potential. But see, the approach here that this particular professor is taking is that it's gaslighting. I mean, they're basically gaslighting them. They're saying, well, they need government. They need the school system to help them. But again, they're leaving because they don't think that the school is helping them enough. That's, that's very, uh, it's very misleading. I'll just say that. It's the exact opposite of what typically happens within the system. But again, that's why a great deal of these articles are not written by people who have been inside the system. They're written by novices. They're written by individuals who have never worked in the American K-12 school system. And, uh, you know, they shoot from the hip and then they interview hard left professors to gain their, to gain their traction for their article. And then they, you know, rely on every word that they say is being true. It says the following here too, underneath that particular parameter, it says they're find quote, they're finding that they're making these huge gains over the summer and they go back to school and they lose them, Struber said. Again, it's kind of the exact opposite. They're not making gains during the summer. That's typically not the way that the K-12 school system is set up. Because the thing that the left has always complained about is they'll always say, well, there's lost learning during the summer years. There's always lost learning. And when we get them back from the summer, well, it's like they haven't learned anything and X, Y, Z. What what typically happens is is they haven't been indoctrinated and continuing to indoctrinate themselves during the summer months because 
they know intrinsically deep in their soul that what they're learning is unnatural. If it were natural, they would want to learn it freely all of the time. But when summer rolls around and everybody takes a deep breath and a sigh of relief and says, oh, thank God I don't have to do that anymore, no one dives into why everybody feels that way. Nobody dives down that rabbit hole of thought and that rabbit hole of emotion as to why is it that almost everybody, including the teachers themselves and the administrators and everybody says, thank God all the students are gone. And the students say, thank God school's over with. The reason is because the environment is unnatural, what they are learning is false, and intrinsically, again, in their very DNA, their very being, they know that what they're being told to learn is not the truth. Now, they don't know it all the time because, again, it's a brainwashing camp. It's designed to keep that veil down so that they can't see or think clearly. But the homeschooling environment rips the veil right off. And again, now the left is trying to take credit for it for, for some reason. Trying to swoop in and be the hero yet again. It wraps up here and it says, Of note, parents also cite the increase in school shootings as a reason to keep their kids home. <laughs> That's hilarious. You mean the fake ones? You mean all those fake ones? that the administration buys and scares everybody into believing is actually real, and then they go home and watch their brainwashed idiot box TV and think that it's all real, and then go back into the same brainwashing environment and believe it? Yeah. Again, it's fake. The fear is manufactured. It also says the bottom line here, quote, being able to tailor the education to the individual child is one of the things that is extremely personally persuasive for people to come to homeschooling and they and then decide to stay Stuber told Axios. I love how they frame it like it's a bad thing. They have to frame a good thing like it's a bad thing. Only the devil would do that. And only a godless monster would try to would try to, you know, work it around that way. How horrible it is that an individual child would, uh, you know, come to the realization that they don't need the system and they can freely learn on their own. And, and that's remarkably persuasive. And that's why they end up leaving and they never come back to the brick and mortar environment. Again, they're just trying to tailor it like it's a bad thing. It then says details. The Washington Post analysis examines data from 32 states and Washington, D.C. States that aren't in the analysis do not record enough or any data on how many kids are homeschooled. Well, that's not entirely true. You can simply do a basic math problem and ask how many are enrolled in K-12 public-private charter. And then how many children do you have in the entire state and do a subtraction problem and you'll figure out how many are homeschooling. So that math can be done and that can be figured out. But this article, again, is rather embarrassing. They're trying to take some of the, some of the very basic revelations that occur among homeschooling students and their parents and families as a whole, and now they're trying to take credit for it while giving it their left spin and saying, well, the trannies are being discriminated against, that's why they're homeschooling. No, that's not it. 
It's the brick and mortar environment that puts up with the tranny. It's the brick and mortar environment that puts up with the violence. It's the brick and mortar environment that puts up with the brainwashing because the people inside are brainwashed. That's the whole point. Walking away from these brick and mortar environments is pulling the rod out of the back of your neck in the matrix. Always has been. It's the same thing. Once that happens, you don't put the rod back in. I love it. But I find it very suspicious that the left is trying to take credit for particular things and claim that somehow, you know, it's the, uh, it's the students on the right and, uh, you know, the, I don't know, the, the more violent students on the right. And they stop shy of just saying white kids. I mean, that's really what they wanted to say. The schools are violent because of all the white kids discriminating against blacks and trannies. That's not true. That's not true at all. Here's another reason, by the way, that more people are leaving the American K-12 school system. You've heard me bring up with regularity the dumbing down of the requirements and the dumbing down of the testing for both teachers and students and back to teachers again. Well, here's another one. This came from the Daily Caller, and it's titled, New Jersey Teachers Union Calls for Ending Basic Skills Test Requirement. This, again, has to do with teachers says the New Jersey Teachers Union is pushing to eliminate a basic skills test for teachers according to a statement issued Wednesday. Now, why are they doing that? They're doing this not just because particular races aren't passing these tests. They're doing it because they have a massive teacher shortage, and they can't make up the difference. So the first move that they make is they always try to dumb down the requirements. Now, me personally, I always thought that a bachelor's degree should have been enough. That under no circumstance should a person have to take, uh, you know, a, I don't know, a philosophical slash ideological test, which is basically what the praxis exam is. And then same thing with an area exam. I mean, the area exam makes more sense than the other does. Because frankly, the ideological sort of... Uh, Basics for teaching and learning, quote unquote, that's what they call it. That particular area exam that you take to become certified is remarkably subjective. It always has been, it always will be. Back when I took it, it was a handwritten exam. There was an essay question, and we wrote out our answer in pencil. And that, and again, that was it. I failed it the first time, and then I passed it the second time by, quote unquote, one point. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, my answers didn't change. From the first time to the second time, the questions weren't hard. Many of them were situational. You have a group of students in your classroom and they're doing this and they're behaving this way. What do you do? A parent over here has a complaint about this. You know, how do you work with your other staff members and your other colleagues in order to make sure that the, uh, you know, the answer gets provided to the parent? In, in, a, in a just and timely manner and all sides can be, can be satisfied while policy is being followed. It's questions like that. It really isn't tough. It just depends on who's reading it and do they like your answer or not. And as you know me, I'm a rather direct individual. I don't beat around the bush too much and I get right down to brass tacks. If my answer, which I provided and I did back then, was rather direct, in getting everybody in a room, hammering out the problem, and then making sure that people were held accountable for not doing what they needed to be, you know, needed to be doing. 
that someone who is softer wouldn't want to read that answer. And they'd say, well, maybe more conferences need to take place and maybe more communication needs to take place and all these other excuses that they make. It's ridiculous. This is also why the system is failing. It's failing and has always failed because it doesn't get down to brass tacks, because it always creates more excuses where excuses are the problem. So if you make more of the problem, well, you're going to have more of a problem. But now with this dumbing down of testing and this elimination of it, this is happening because they have no teachers anymore. So they're trying to scoop up anybody they can off the back of a turnip truck who has a pulse. That's who they want to be school teachers because that's who they have to have as school teachers now. It says the New Jersey Education Association released a statement touting their goal to lower the bar for aspiring teachers and encouraging allies to write letters to the governor expressing support for the cause. Again, there are already state departments of education that are doing this all over the nation. It's been happening with regularity. So this is the NJEA, the New Jersey Education Association, tweeting this out on November 8th. They said, quote, we need to take action. Last year, New Jersey eliminated the EdTPA, which is the entrance exam, a barrier to becoming a certified teacher. Now it's time to eliminate another barrier, the basic skills test for teachers. Urge Governor Murphy to sign S-1553 right away. Again, EdTPA was interesting because EdTPA was nonsensical. Um, it was too long. It was far too invasive, I thought. I administered the EdTPA with an undergraduate when I was an adjunct professor for one semester. And I went through the entire process. I read every aspect of it. Um, there were parts that were okay, and then there were parts that were too much. It was too much writing. I'll put it that way. It was just too much writing. The, the cool part about the EdTPA was that it forced the undergraduate who was student teaching to record themselves on video. And then they would have to go back and watch it. This is valuable. This is, this is frankly valuable for just about anybody in almost any working environment. You know, where are you standing? What are you saying? Who are you engaging with? What are you doing and not doing? That's important and that kind of matters. Beyond that, uh, you know, they would, they would make you dive deep into a particular lesson that you were engaging in. And again, it became subjective to the point where you would write this multi, multi paged, borderline dissertation of what you were doing. It was maybe 30 some odd pages, maybe a little more than that. And then you would go back and reflect on your lesson. And then ultimately someone would have to read it. Someone that you would never see. And it would be a committee of people, allegedly, uh, reading these EdTPAs. And there were even jobs out there for people who wanted to read the EdTPAs and get paid. Uh, I can't think of a more boring job, but that that was available. And then ultimately, it would boil down to who was reading it and what they personally thought about what you were doing. Now, again, there would be a rubric for these individuals when it came to reading all of this documentation from a student teacher regarding the EdTPA. But even so, at the end of the day, it always boils down to subjectivity. 
It boils down to whether or not the individual likes what you're doing or they don't like what you're doing. And, you know, that's, that's not objective at all. But here's what it says. It continues and it says, New Jersey requires that candidates for teacher certification ba- pass a basic skills test, the Praxis Core Academic Skills for Educators. Again, this makes sense. Reading, writing, and math. Or show SAT or ACT or GRE scores in the top third percentile the year they were taken, the statement continues. Again, it makes sense, but part of this is also a bit of a problem because what happened to the entire bachelor's degree? What's the, what's the whole point of a bachelor's degree? If a person gets a bachelor's degree in a particular subject, education is one of the only subjects where you leave and then you have to take more tests on top of it. it I mean, it truly is that way. I'm not saying there aren't other majors where that might be the case depending on the job that you end up getting hired in, but you can't even get hired as a school teacher if you don't, of course, pass these exams after you graduate and then, of course, get certified in doing so. So. The ultimate reason that they're doing this again is they're they're claiming civil rights violations to some extent by saying, well, blacks aren't passing these tests and Asians aren't passing these tests and Latinos aren't, you know, Hispanics aren't passing these tests. It's majority white and, and that's not just and that's not fair. Well, that's, you know, <laughs> that's true. It, the exact say, the, the fairness part has nothing to do with it. it. It's certainly fair. It's just whether or not they're competent enough to pass the exam or not. Uh, you know, when it came to the area exam, I, pa- I, I got every question correct, every single one. Again, it's multiple choice, true, false. It's not difficult. And if you ever, you know, if you have a brain and you paid attention uh, in college to the subject that you were learning that you wanted to actually teach, passing the area exam should be a breeze. It's the other stuff that's far more subjective that can become the problem, depending on, like I said, who's reading it. But either way, this has nothing to do with race, really. It has more to do with the fact that there is a massive teacher shortage. And in order to let more individuals into the collapsing house of cards business, you have to take down some of the walls. And this is one of the walls that they're always trying to take down. So I just wanted to bring that to your attention. Okay. Uh, don't think for a minute, though, that education is the only one where they're trying to dumb down the uh, the requirements. As it turns out, social work is also one of them. Now, this is hilarious. This is about five five and a half minutes long. I want to play this audio because you're going to hear this from the uh, from the horse's mouth itself. This right here is incredible. Leave it to social workers and female minority social workers. Bless their hearts. To, to blame race as, as to why they believe that the tests that they have to take to become certified social workers is unjust or unfair. Again, the real disconnect exists with what are you learning in the classroom when you're trying to be a particular thing, and then what's on the test that you have to take in order to be certified in that thing? And there is a there's always been a huge disconnect, and as we know, because of the satanic brainwashing nature of the entire environment, those two those two poles, so to speak, couldn't be further away from one another now. And it's remarkable. So listen to these excuses because the excuses truck is about to back up and give this a listen in three, two, one. 
Nurses, pharmacists, even barbers have to pass tests to work in D.C., but the D.C. Council is considering doing away with the exam requirement for certain types of social workers over concerns of racial bias. Yeah, the move comes as the nation grapples with a shortage of social workers. Our investigative reporter Ted Oberg and the News 4i team have been digging into this debate. Ted, what's at stake here? Yeah, hey, Jim and Ann, social workers address the needs of our city's most vulnerable neighbors. And everyone we spoke with agrees it's important to make sure they are qualified to do that. But critics and now a D.C. council member say the test that's long been used to determine that readiness is holding too many people of color back from the communities that need the help the most. On Catholic University's campus. And I want to hear from each group. Graduate students like Sarah and Nestor are preparing for a career helping others. You're going to be a social worker. Sarah is from Southeast D.C. and wants to fill a gap she discovered when she was the one who needed help. When I searched for therapists in D.C., uh, finding a black therapist as a woman who would see the same worldviews as me was almost nil to none. The News 4i team sat down with the students, Sarah, Carla Abney, Emily Fortes, and Raquel Ruiz, as D.C. contemplates changing what it takes to become a social worker. Only one of them, Ph.D. candidate Carla, has taken the exam, needed to become what's called a licensed graduate social worker. It was one of the toughest things I've ever done. She passed, but the I team found there's growing concern that too few people who look like her are passing too. What the exam is doing is de-diversifying the profession. Catholic University professor Michael Massey says for years he's seen too many students of color succeed in class but fail the multiple choice licensure exam, which he says fails to capture cultural nuances. And so we have social work, great social workers of color who came to social work schools to serve their communities, and they, they're not being allowed to do it. despite rigorous preparation at school. Massey's among those who have pushed the Association of Social Work Boards, which for decades has administered the exam to release pass rate data, and the results were stark. Between 2018 and 2021, 76% of white test takers passed the bachelor's level exam the first time, but only 60% of Asian test takers did, followed by 53% of Hispanic applicants and only 33% of black test takers passed that first time. It's easy to say, like, you could possibly blame the test takers, but I think accountability has to be taken of how the exam is structured. Now, Councilman Robert White is behind a bill that would eliminate the exam for entry and master's level licensure applicants whose work would still have to be supervised by more experienced social workers. We will not sort of release unqualified people uh, onto the masses, but this exam is not a proven method of qualification. After Illinois eliminated their test two years ago, that state saw nearly 3,000 social workers licensed the following year. White says he hopes doing so here will help fill widespread vacancies in schools and social services. Why not fix the exam? There is no evidence that this exam, passing this exam, results in better practitioners. Anna Globoon, executive director of the Consortium for Child Welfare and head of the Social Workers Unite DC Coalition, says more research is needed before tossing out this exam. She notes 85% of DC graduate applicants eventually pass it. 
the exam, the social work exam is not a problem. Moon says D.C. could allow social workers to work with a provisional license while they take the test again. And she says city leaders should focus on retaining current social workers instead of weakening the requirements to become one. We won't know if these folk who get licensed without having a passing or demonstrating basic competencies, if they will engage in safe, competent, ethical responsible practice. I mean, if someone if someone shows that they're a risk to a patient, we can get rid of them. Maybe, but we won't know that until after the fact. In a statement, the Social Work Board told News 4 they stand by our social work licensing examinations and believe D.C. should keep them because doing so brings legitimacy to our profession. The board adds they are currently researching ways to address the larger institutional inequities. I really have to prepare to understand this exam that really wasn't created for someone who looks like me. Back at Catholic, some of these students worry that unless the test changes or D.C. does away with it, they may not be able to do the work they've set out to do. Having that kind of on my back a little bit is nervous, nerve-wracking. Earlier this year, Maryland created a work group to study this issue there, and Carla, who you just saw in our report, is serving as the chair of that working group. Here in D.C., it's important to note Councilmember White's proposal wouldn't affect the highest level of social workers who can diagnose and treat mental and behavioral disorders, but his proposal does set up a study to possibly eliminate their test as well. There is no schedule for a council vote on this issue. Ted Oberg, the News 419. Interesting report. Ted, thank you. Interesting report, Ted. Thank you. Oh, my. Okay. First of all, at the very top of that, you heard them openly say they're doing this because they have a shortage in social workers. They openly admitted it. So, (laughs) everything that they said after that is a lie. It's absolutely a lie, including the gal at the end who goes, they didn't make the test for people who look like me. You're right. That's because they don't make tests for the way that people look. If they made a test for you, well, it'd be a puzzle and it would have three pieces because you look like an idiot. Here's the way that this works. Again, I'm just getting down to brass tacks here. It has been historically proven time and time again over the course of decades, and I mean no offense because facts shouldn't be offensive to anyone, but here it comes. Social workers, by and large, have lower IQs than other individuals in other professions. This is a fact. I'm not saying that with a wide brush across the board. I know that that's not true. There are plenty of intelligent social workers. They get into it because they care. They want to help. They want to give back. They want to protect particular individuals, hopefully. Uh, Certainly children from abusive families. But look, the social worker system also works hand-in-hand with the courts which can rip children away from families who mean well and are trying hard. So there's a level of corruption that always exists within any line of work, certainly within social workers also. But the IQ aspect of this cannot be diminished. Again, you heard numerous individuals throughout that make endless excuses that it's inequitable and, uh, you know, we... We, we, we are passing the classes, but we're not passing the tests. Well, again, what are you teaching in the class? What's actually being taught? My guess is, is it's feelings. You're sitting around and, and talking about feelings. I'll never forget this particular course that I took when I was a senior in college. 
I took a social worker course, a social work course, because it was mandatory. I had to take it as a health education major. Um, it was arguably one of the worst classes that I took. And I'm having, oh, there, there we go. I just remembered it. Okay. I didn't want to look it up, but <laughs> I just remembered it. In one particular class, and it was dominated by women, no offense. I was one of maybe two guys, maybe three guys in the entire class. It was a big class. There were probably 40 of us. And uh, one particular day, they had us sit down. It was an evening class, and it was long. It was a three-hour night class, kind of a nightmare, on a branch campus. And they had us sit down and watch the movie Antoine Fisher. Now, if you've ever seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't seen the movie, I do not recommend it. I didn't care for it. That's my opinion. But it was basically uh, a story about, allegedly a true story, about a, a black child who goes through the social work program and the foster home program and is sexually and physically abused throughout the program to find his way into the Navy, if memory serves. And then he ends up uh, getting a girlfriend who is also in the Navy, both of them black, and then has commitment problems and commitment issues and anger issues and so on and so forth. And she loves him and he loves her, but he's bumping up against a history of noncommittal relationships and absent parents and so on and so on. And who befriends him but a counselor in the Army or the Navy also who just so happens to be Denzel Washington. And then Denzel Washington mentors this individual and then everybody lives happily ever after. We were, I, I had already seen the movie before the show. Don't ask me why. I can't recall why I first saw it or where I saw it. But I remember walking in and knowing that the knowing full well that the that the movie was not relevant, that it wasn't relevant to the class, it wasn't relevant to procedure, it wasn't relevant to anything. It was simply playing on emotions, and it was quite literally a waste of time. In fact, if memory serves, I raised my hand and I said, "I hate to you know I I hate to be rude and and I don't want to be, but I've already seen this movie." I said, I understand that there's a paper that we have to that we have to write for some reason after this movie and then turn in said paper. I said, can I just go home and write the paper or do I have to watch this all over again? And then again, a lot of people were like, I've seen this movie too. And I was like, I don't, I don't need to be here. I actually forget what happened. I don't think I stayed and watched the movie. I think I just got up and left. And then wrote the paper and, you know, did whatever. Um, I don't even remember the grade I got in the class. But, but that right there proves my point is that these social work classes will spend a little time talking about the law. They'll spend a little time talking about procedure. But they spend a lot of time talking about feelings. And that can be, that can be problematic. An individual who wants to be a social worker is usually there for the feelings anyway. They're there because, again, they care about youth and they think that youth are all disenfranchised, one way or another, whether they know it or not. You know, that uh, it's just like when individuals say the whites are racists and they don't even know why. Well, that's preposterous. But again, 
we're catering to lower IQ individuals who tend to inhabit these kinds of positions. What they also, of course, may or may not have mentioned in that piece is the turnover rate. The turnover rate among social workers and nurses and school teachers is remarkably high. That's not an accident. That's a giant on purpose. It's taxing. It's a taxing job. Again, you make little to no money. You work longer, rather long hours. It is certainly a job you take home with you from an emotional standpoint. And, and that's, you know, that's problematic. And, it, and like I said, it's psychologically taxing. The same is true with being a nurse and the same is true with being a school teacher. So from that aspect, I get it. But for someone to say they need to change the test because they didn't make the test for someone who looks like me, that right there should prove to you low IQ. That's a low IQ individual because if they believe that brainwashing nonsense, there's no getting them back. They're going to think that everything that they don't pass is because of the illegitimacy of the thing that they're trying to pass because of the way that they look. That's dumb. And again, a person who believes that is, uh, is sliding on the old IQ scale. So there you go. A lot, again, a lot of problems with it, but this just continues to prove the point that they're dumbing things down because more and more people are creating excuses as to why they're not succeeding. And it's always been a yarn that will continue to be woven, I'm afraid. That leads me to this, which again proves how violent the environment can in fact be. This was making the rounds this past week, and this happened actually a couple of weeks ago, if memory serves. But it was just making the rounds this week that a white, well, this is from the dailyveracity.com. It's titled White Kids Stomped to Death by Allegedly Over a Dozen Black Teens. Now, one of the things that's happened with this, and I'm assuming that this is true, I saw some footage. You can't see the kid who's being stomped to death necessarily, but what you can see is that one of his friends ends up getting off, off of the ground and then chasing another student who, again, was doing the beating. So there was certainly a fight taking place. And I'm not doubting that this happened. But uh, this was out of, again, Rancho High School in Las, in Las Vegas. One of the things, of course, that the media always does with cases like this is they don't identify who the individuals are who are doing the beating. So they'll say teens, quote-unquote, instead of black teens. In this particular article, they say black teens, which is accurate. And they say white kid, which is accurate. In other stories, again, in particular from NBC, for example, and even the New York Post, they'll simply say, you know, violent teens attack student. And they, and they use the word teens with regularity, but they don't identify them unless, of course, the victimizer happens to be white. In which case, they'll say, white vic you know, uh, violent white kid stomps on black teenagers and, and, and kills them. If, if, if that happens and, and the black happens to be the victim, then they highlight it. But if the black is the victimizer, they don't. This is a trend that anybody can pick up on. It is unfair. It is unjust. Again, you talk about social justice. That certainly is not just. But it's also, again, media manipulation. So here's what it said. It said a 17-year-old white teen was beaten to death in what news outlets are calling a fight 
outside of Rancho High School in Las Vegas, News 3 sources report while Las Vegas police delve into the incident. Now again, before I get into it, I'm just going to say again, it was roughly a dozen of, uh, of these, these black teenagers. They should all be brought up on charges of murder. They won't be. And therein lies the problem. They murdered this kid, period. And, uh, and, and they should do life in jail, if not be executed. But that's not going to happen. Neither of those things will happen. It says social media footage displays a group surrounding the teens as they punch and kick him, although the full footage doesn't seem to be available anywhere. The altercation occurred on November 1st in an alley near the Searleys, I don't know what that means, uh, North 21st Street across from the Rancho High School. The Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department's homicide section is handling the case given the critical injuries sustained by the teen. There's a GoFundMe, and there you have it. Jonathan Lewis, the father of the victim, spoke with 8 News Now on Thursday, characterizing the event as a brutal attack. Again, I, I heard the audio of the dad. He doesn't necessarily sound like the sharpest knife in the drawer. Uh, he was claiming that, again, his son was about to, was about to move and live with him instead of where he was currently living. Uh, either way, it sounds like, again, this individual was coming to the aid of someone else and then, again, was attacked. So it's, it's awful. All of that goes without saying. But again, it's the constant media manipulation when it comes to black-on-white crime. That really is astounding. And it continues to be that way. And if they are forced to actually report on it, it's their word usage and their word manipulation. That uh, that really takes precedent here, and it, it's just glaring. It's glaringly obvious that that's the case. So they have an agenda. We know what that is, and uh, and we just have to you know be as objective as humanly possible when it comes to stories like this. Again, I don't know what started the altercation. Could have been the you know the initial kid was just jumped out of nowhere. Hard to tell. But ladies and gentlemen, these continue to not be. These continue to be, rather, environments that do not put the safety and security of minors at the forefront. They always say that they do, but they don't. In fact, let me give you a recent example of something that's happening in the town where I live. The nitwits who are in charge of, uh, will sit on city council, I should say, and on planning committees and all this other nonsense because they have nothing better to do. What they've decided to do is they've decided in an attempt to well, they've, they've tried to do this anyway. Whether they get away with it or not, it's another matter. They're trying to create a walking path between the middle school and another section of town, basically. What essentially leads out to sort of the center of town on the south side of town. We're talking about multiple miles of a trail here. And this trail essentially cuts by cornfields, and it cuts right behind people's houses that butt up against cornfields. I can't think of anything more unsafe than an unmonitored trail, or again, it's a, basically a sidewalk that would that would stretch from the back of a middle school to a center of a town. Again, these individuals that create this kind of crap and this wasteful spending, they never think about crime. They never think about youth crime. 
They never think about sexual predators, rape, drug deals, any of any of that. They never consider any of that. And they'll say that they do. Well, we want everybody to be safe and we certainly don't want anybody to be hurt. On a trail like this, you can't get a cop car back there. You can't get anybody back there. Bicycles maybe, but that's about it. And again, it's never it's not a trail that's ever been there ever in the history of the town. And yet they're trying to create this now as if it's necessary. It wasn't necessary since the inception of the town, but now it's necessary. These these individuals that that create these kind of stupid and asinine ideas, they have no powers of reflection whatsoever. And as we know, they have an agenda, and the agenda does not lie in the bed of common sense. But that's the American K-12 school system also in a nutshell. If you have a road that is across the street from your school, and students congregate over there, that's where student fights are going to take place. We had a road like that at the high school where I grew up and was attending. That's where everybody went who was violent. If you weren't a drug-using, violent person, you didn't go over there. So again, a lot of this also has to do with vigilance and parents not teaching their children to be vigilant. If you see a group of quote-unquote dangerous-looking people over in one area, then you don't go there. You stay away. If you're outnumbered, you really don't go there. If you look out of place, you really don't go there. These are, these are basic survival skills that uh, a wild deer could pick up on. You know, if a deer, for God's sakes, which has four legs and a smaller brain, could, could look at a crowd of people and say, I shouldn't go over there, then they shouldn't go over there. And they don't. But human beings, you know, that's, that's not the case. They pick fights in school. They say, hey, let's go across the street and duke it out. And then they do. And then somebody gets killed. And then everybody's shocked as to why that happened. So, I don't know. Stupidity on all sides here, and a lack of vigilance, and that's continuing to be a problem. But again, that, that's the times that we live in. And frankly, again, that's always been the case, but it's not going away and it's not getting better. Here's another one. This is an interesting tale. This certainly points to... School board members, in particular a school board president in Michigan, as engaging in some rather nefarious action here regarding money. Uh, this was tossed to us by our Michigan business friend, and this comes from cngnews.com. It is titled, Former School Board President Sentenced to Prison, Albert Morrison Convicted on Public Corruption Charges. This is out of Madison Heights, which I'm told is... A rather large school district in Michigan, one of the larger ones. It says a former president of the Madison District Public Schools Board of Education will serve prison time for tax evasion and a years-long bribery scheme. Albert Morrison, 62, was sentenced November 9th by U.S. District Judge Lori Mickelson, and he will serve 45 months in prison beginning in late January, followed by two years of, super, of supervised release. Morrison was also ordered to pay $118,200 in restitution for the Internal Revenue Service. Morrison pleaded guilty April 25th to receiving bribe money and tax evasion. He served as 
president of the Madison District Public School Boards of a uh, School Board of Education rather from 2012 through 2018. It says investigators say that Morrison's co-conspirator and longtime friend John David 65 paid him more than $560,000 in bribe money cutting checks through David's company Emergency Restoration which Morrison cashed through his own company. Ah, money laundering. Uh, it says, uh, w- which w- apparently was Comfort Consulting. That sounds nice. In exchange, Morrison awarded Emergency Restitution, the company, more than $3.1 million in maintenance and construction work at school properties without the board's knowledge or approval. David pleaded guilty to the scheme April 13th and was sentenced August 14th to two years in prison beginning later this year. David was also ordered to pay $30,000 in restitution. It says in total, investigators uncovered 561,667 in payments from David to Morrison from 2014 to 2018. Neither David nor Morrison disclosed the payments to state auditors. Morrison also kept the payments secret from the IRS failing to report them as income during those five years. Morrison also did not file a federal income tax return in any of those years except 2014, investigators said. This way, he avoided paying roughly $118,200 in taxes. And it goes on and on and on. It's a lengthy article, but wow. It's just incredible. Again, school board members, ladies and gentlemen, they shouldn't exist in the first place, but if they do, you've got to keep an eye on them. Because think of the COVID cash. Again, how many arrests have we seen regarding the COVID money making its way into school districts? And again, all that money has just disappeared, and they claim that they've kept good track of every cent and and everything that they've spent it on, but again... We also know that in some cases, they've decided to pay themselves. Like the school district where my niece and nephew go, they simply made a vote right during the whole pandemic. And I watched the meeting where it happened, where they voted to, again, pay themselves and any incoming member a certain amount of money for sitting on the board, when normally that was never the case. This is, of course, way beyond that and way more criminal, but either way. They're, uh, they're not free from this kind of money laundering, and they're not free from that level of deception, without a doubt. Okay, speaking of jabs now, let me get to this. I want to speak here about the little, I would call it a miniature congressional hearing. No one was sworn in, to my knowledge, and again, this wasn't held by any large committee uh, of any individuals. And rightfully so, as even Marjorie Taylor Greene herself pointed out. She pointed out, along with Matt Gates and, and the other individuals who were there, like Thomas Massey, that the reason that the COVID story and the shots in particular and their poisonous nature are not hitting any kind of a actual senatorial or congress- congressional committee is because of the back pay, or the kickbacks, I should say, that all of these elected officials end up getting from the pharmaceutical industry. That's part of it. That's the big reason why. They're not going to shoot the hand or, you know, cut off the hand that feeds, basically. Um, I'll, hand, I'll hand it to Marjorie Taylor Greene f- for this. Again, she's a politician. She's doing this, again, to, to curry favor with 
her constituents, I'm sure, along with a few other individuals as well, but she at least put it together. The interesting part is is that when these when these little hearings take place where a few quote unquote experts testify, they're not really sharing anything that we don't already know. And it's certainly not anything that I haven't covered here on the show, nor is it anything different than what they've already said publicly. So it may not be for us, but it's certainly for somebody. And if someone learns something from it, then I say great. Uh, but here was the breakdown. Yesterday during her, her little hearing here, you had a Dr. Kimberly Biss, who's an OBGYN. You had Dr. Robert Malone, and then you had Tom Rents, who is a lawyer in the state of Ohio. Um, again, of the three, I like Tom Rents and Kimberly Biss because of, again, what, what they bring to the table. The problem with Robert Malone is that of the three of them, he's the only one who's worked for three-letter agencies before playing with poisons in a lab, claiming that he's actually working with gene-altering medicine in order to cure cancer or help other ailments. I have a problem with this. He probably thought he was doing well, maybe, at some point in his career, and, uh, and has not, as it turns out, in my humble opinion. There were a number of revelations that came out of this, but let me just set the table as to who was there first if you didn't happen to watch it. Mar Large Marge was running the whole thing, which, which was fine. Um, she found, again, a lot of the, the childhood statistics and deaths related to the shots, along with pregnant mothers, to be clearly um, traumatic and, and overwhelming, which it was. And then you had Thomas Massey, and I'm running off a of memory here. I've, I've seen their faces. Uh, you had Clay Higgins, who I like. I, Clay Higgins, if memory serves, is out of Louisiana and used to be a sheriff, if memory serves. And he openly stated in the hearing he doesn't trust government. He doesn't trust the backstory of these shots. He didn't take the shots. His family didn't take it. He told his friends not to take it. Um, he said, again, if it's coming from the government and it comes from a needle, I'm not, I'm not doing it which was awesome by him. And he goes, and it doesn't pass the smell test. This whole thing was suspicious. But um, again, you had other individuals, including Warren Davidson, of all people, who represents the, the area of Ohio where I live. And he was saying again that his constituents were upset because of the coercion and losing their job if they didn't take it. And now they're sick and they're, they're injured and some of them are dead and whatever else. Um, this again shouldn't shock anybody, but in in letting these individuals talk like in particular Robert Malone there was a number cuz i always hone in on him and and what he says and what he does not say here's what he actually admitted to in the hearing yesterday and i don't think that he can hear himself talk because he's actually proving with his own words that virology is a lie and that there only exists the human body and then poison on the outside of the human body, and that when that poison makes its way into the human body, you become ill. And of course, he's claiming that prevention or medicine can come via a needle or a syringe, which is not true. There are zero studies that show that vaccinating anybody for anything, quote-unquote, prevents anything from happening. 
certainly not preventing illness. But here's what Robert Malone actually admitted to. He admitted that DNA from outside of the human body, whether it be modified or not, from other things being injected into the body can cause cancer. He said this. He openly admitted that, which means a a number of different things. Number one, the very thing that he was studying throughout his career, so he says, the modified RNA and creating an immune response that will strengthen this or strengthen that. He's just proven that what he's participated in can cause cancer. Now, he's not going to say that because cognitive dissonance takes over and he doesn't want to think he was responsible for anything, certainly not the ill health of anyone. No different than a pediatrician who gives a child a shot for, you know, whatever, uh, you know, the Tdap shot or a flu shot, and then they end up severely ill, if not dead. The pediatrician doesn't want to believe it was the actual shot that did it. But Robert Malone openly admitted, again, that SV40, that simian virus, quote-unquote, 40, which again is kidney cells, monkey kidney cells, being mixed in with other potions in a vial to be sucked into a syringe and then jammed into a person's body, can cause cancer. Well, that's in every single shot, which means by default, Robert Malone just admitted that every vaccination can cause cancer. Oops. Along with, of course, fetal tissue cells, which are fetal DNA. Outside of the human body, with a syringe being stuck into a dead fetus, sucked into the syringe, again, put into other potions, stirred around and then labeled a flu shot, and then given to a human being as a flu shot. You have to keep in mind, too, the history of vaccination. Childhood cancer did not exist before the invention of vaccination, thereby proving that childhood cancer and many cancers come about as a result of vaccination. Again. Robert Malone openly admitted that DNA inside of shots causes cancer when injected into a person. Here's what didn't get said, though. He didn't make any connection, because he wouldn't want to publicly, that there is no COVID, that there is no illness or quote-unquote pandemic that's floating around in the air that people breathe, that all of this came about as a result of the 2019 flu shot. That's it. It originated with the flu shot. People took it. They shed on people. Those individuals went around sick and feeling ill, and then they got around other people. And it may have been, may, I say may, could have been more contagious than being around someone who had been injected with a regular run of the mill flu shot, which are equally as poisonous. But even so, It depends on, of course, the batch and maybe even where you live and how much is actually in the syringe and so on and so on. But all of that was the real reason for quote-unquote COVID, which again, as I've been over before, even that acronym is incorrect. It doesn't stand for Coronavirus Disease 19. It's Certificate of Vaccination Identification Artificial Intelligence. That's That's the larger scheme here. 
that part of it is actually what Tom Rents knows. And this was a major disagreement that happened in the hearing, which was fantastic to watch. Robert Malone, time and time again, stated that he doesn't believe that this was done intentionally. He actually chalks this up to FDA incompetence. Cutting corners, trying to get something out there quickly so that people can take it, that it was just incompetence. Nonsense. Nonsense. This was intentional. In fact, that's where Thomas Rents brings to bear a lot of the DOD documentation that even I've mentioned on the show here and read through, that people like Catherine Watt have presented and fully understand. And Tom Rents knows this also. He knows that patents were made on all of this stuff dating decades ago, that this has been a Department of Defense plan for a very long time. But Robert Malone doesn't ask Tom Rents about that. Robert Malone doesn't want to see that evidence. He doesn't want to get too close. Because again, Robert Malone might disappear. Or Robert Malone might end up offending some of his so-called friends in these three-letter agencies. So Robert plays the game that he wants to play in order to make it again sound like he's sort of uh, involved slash not involved. I was trying to help, but uh, apparently, you know, my RNA was was modified and changed, and it, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't what went out to the masses. Well, we're, we're splitting hairs. The fact is, is that for him or anybody else to not have a full grasp of the depopulation agenda at this point, I'm sorry, but your head's in the sand. You're, you're missing the mark. This has been written about for hundreds of years, and certainly since and around the inception of vaccination within human society. That by, by, by tricking doctors into believing that what is new and what is the latest craze at the end of a syringe is somehow going to be the thing that cures you or prevents you from becoming ill. They needed that fairy tale, and that fairy tale remains strong to this day, although I'm certain, as I'm sure you are, that fairy tale is crumbling. It's certainly falling apart. More and more people understand that it's all been a fairy tale and that we've been lied to this entire time. That's undeniable. But for, again, someone like Robert Malone and Steve Kirsch, who again play on the same team, which is basically team, I don't think this was done on purpose. I don't think there's a depopulation agenda. And they're rather firm in that belief. It's rather foolish. And they're showing everybody how foolish they are because we know more than they do. So if I were to address these people as some of these, even Ron Johnson was there, of course, um, you know, some of these senators and representatives. That when they're there, they'll say things like, "I'll defer to the I'll defer to the expert, you know, Doctor Malone." What makes him an expert exactly? The fact that he's memorized more lies than someone else. You know what makes him the valedictorian? The fact that he's memorized more lies than someone else. If what he's saying isn't real, then he's not an expert in anything. And again, he thinks viruses are real. They aren't. History proves this. But he's benefited from the fairy tale, and he's worked with the fairy tale, so he has to he has to continue to believe it to some extent. 
He's holding on to it because he doesn't want to let that comfortable delusion go. And I think there's rather nefarious reasons as to why that's the case. Um, but again, Rents openly stated time and time again that this was intentional. He has the proof. We've seen the proof. Again, I've brought it up here on the show. And again, from a literature standpoint, this kind of depopulation agenda has been written about at length for centuries, certainly within the last 120 plus years, because it's in the protocols of the elders of Zion. If you've ever read that book, and I highly recommend it because you can, you can read it uh, on f- for free on PDF. It's about 97 pages long. On protocol number 16, it says emasculation of the universities, substitute for classicism, training and calling, advertisement of the authority of the ruler, quote unquote, in the schools, abolition of freedom of instruction, new theories, independence of thought, teaching by object lessons. And in a previous protocol, what they also state, of course, is that they have the lawyers. They have the lawyers, the doctors, the professors, the people that run these institutions, the medical institutions, and they're all on the same page. Aren't we seeing that now? For the people that are continuing to wake up anyway, aren't they starting to see that? Aren't they starting to see the communism and the similarities between all of them, regardless of where they go, what they do, and what they say? Which again, when someone is thinking outside of the box, and away from that mainstream wavelength of thought like Thomas Rents, when he sits next to a Robert Malone, somebody like Robert Malone looks like he's out of touch. But he's going along again with sort of the foundational party line that, uh, that unfortunately many individuals are going along with, including, of course, politicians. But because the politicians are wrapped up in this too, where, where is a committee like this really going to go? Where's the information that that is revealed in this really going to end up? What is it really going to lead to? And unfortunately, the only suggestion that they could seem to come up with was legislation. That now we have to rely on these elected officials, which are selected, to ultimately pass something that says, no one should be forced to take this kind of stuff. You shouldn't be able to lose your job because you don't want to take a shot. And you should be able to be sued. And, and sue these individuals if, they, if you do end up taking this quote-unquote preventative medicine at the end of a needle and it ends up harming you. Well, as it turns out, you can sue them. And, and that's already happening, and I'm going to get into that right now. But my, my point with the whole conference was, is that, yes, there was a lot of corruption, without a doubt, going on around Donald Trump and the individuals, of course, that were at the forefront of all of this, and I don't think that that was an accident that they were thrust, uh, you know, thrust to the forefront like Deborah Burks and Anthony Fauci and so on and so on. But there were other very nefarious people behind the scenes. One in particular, which I learned about in watching that conference, was a man by the name of Peter Marks. Peter Marks was the one who coined the term Operation Warp Speed. And basically, the people that were working around him, who disagreed with him, were either fired or they left. Because they saw that he was purposefully ramming this through as quickly as humanly possible, making his contacts in the FDA and the CDC, and doing whatever they could to, again, skirt corners and all of that. I have no doubt that that was happening. But a a separate wavelength and dimension of thought is very simple, which is it's being done on purpose. 
depopulation has always been a play in the playbook of those that worship Satan and want us gone. They've openly talked about this. Everybody knows Bill Gates has openly talked about this, that we need more vaccination in order to depopulate. He said it very famously at that TED talk, at that TED conference. So that's, you know, that's the bigger problem here. My problem, too, with the likes of Warren Davidson, who, again, allegedly represents the, the counties around where I live, including my county, is that all he has to do is show up as a, as a Washington, D.C. representative from Ohio and speak at these county commissioner meetings and say there are serious health effects regarding this. You need to close this down. But he's not doing that. We're not seeing any politician that we allegedly vote for come back to our counties and tell people, you need to stop talking about these shots. You need to pull these sh shots off the market. You need to make this, you need to make this illegal in our county to, dis to distribute and inject into people because it's killing people. That's not happening. Any one of those politicians, Marjorie Taylor Greene included, any of them could have said that and done that. And they could do that anytime they want, but they're not doing it. And we're trying to do it, of course, where we live, and it's not working. We're not getting anybody's attention. So it's, it's, it's another Masonic dead end because it's designed to be a dead end. Now, Kim Carter sent this my way the other day, too, and I wanted to read this very quickly. This is a peer-reviewed article, and this comes from, let me see here. AIDS, AIDSresearchtherapy.biomedcentral.com. So BMC, and then the AIDS Research and Therapy magazine, I assume. This is a case report, and it was from October 26th of 2021. It is titled, Acute HIV Infection Syndrome Mimicking COVID-19 Vaccination Side Effect. A case report. Now, again, just very quickly, HIV doesn't exist. There's no such thing. There's just poison that is ingested or inhaled or injected or swallowed or whatever from the outside into the human body, and then it creates abnormal cells, and then the person gets sick, and then if they have a compromised immune system as a result of all of that poisoning, well, then they end up with AIDS. But either way, Let's just go with the title here for a second. I'll get into the background and then the case presentation and the conclusion. It's very brief. Keep in mind, too, this falls right in line with what Anthony Fauci's leaked emails were saying, where people were telling him, hey, look, man, we, we got the same kinds of symptoms here and the same sequences, and the blood from the jab looks exactly like the blood from those that have quote-unquote HIV. So the background says this, quote, symptoms of primary HIV infection include fever, rash, and headache are nonspecific and are often described as flu-like. COVID-19 vaccination side effects such as fever, which occur in up to 10% of people following COVID-19 vaccination, can make the diagnosis of acute HIV infection even more challenging. Here's the case report, or case presentation rather. It says, quote, a 26-year-old man presented with fever and headache following COVID-19 vaccination. The symptoms were initially thought to be vaccine side effects. A diagnostic workup was conducted due to the persisting fever and headache. 
greater than 72 hours following vaccination, and he was diagnosed with Fibig stage 2 acute HIV infection three weeks after having unprotected anal intercourse with another man. Conclusion Though anamnesis, if I'm saying that right, is key to estimating the individual risk primary HIV infection in patients presenting with flu-like symptoms, early diagnosis and initiation of antiretroviral therapy is associated with better prognosis and limits transmission of the disease, unquote. So again, th- the Kickstarter for this probably had less to do with gay sex, and it probably had far more to do with the fact that he was injected with a COVID vaccine. That's what kicked it off. That's undeniable here, based on, again, this particular case presentation. Now, regarding the business of people suing these pharmaceutical industries for this, it's pretty evident that the Department of Justice knows this and they're doing whatever they can to ramp up their legal defense. And they've posted jobs, again, basically stating, look, we need lawyers. We need lawyers to defend us and to defend the pharmaceutical industry to some extent from individuals who are suffering from severe side effects as a result of this. This was from the New York Post, and of course, it's been all over the place over the last week or so, but it says the Justice Department's just posted a new jobs ad, and it's looking for eight new attorneys to defend the federal government in vaccine injury cases. Now, if the federal government wasn't involved, why is it that they need lawyers to help defend themselves against class action lawsuits? It says, presumably, the hiring spree is in anticipation of a surge of COVID vaccine lawsuits as people who were forced by government mandates to take the jab and suffered serious side effects as a result try to extract compensation from a system that is stacked against them. Since the office is currently expanding to address workload created by an increase in cases filed under the Vaccine Act, quote-unquote, reads the ad posted by the Torts branch of the DOJ on USA Jobs website. Here's what I hope doesn't happen. What I hope doesn't happen is this turns into a Camp Lejeune kind of thing, because this is far worse than Camp Lejeune. This is this is this is a different ball game, completely. Different ballpark, completely different rules. This is far worse. Again, if we are to believe that 70 to 75% of individuals worldwide took these shots, we've seen numerous different death toll accounts and death toll numbers. Upwards of 200 million worldwide dead, right down to 20 million. That should be enough alone to pull these off of the shelves, but that's not happening. What I hope does not happen is that this gets relegated to some TV commercial when you're watching Judge Judy, and all of a sudden it says, you know, were you injured as a result of the COVID-19 vaccine? You might be entitled to compensation. It's too late by then. It's too late. It's going to be too late. This also leads into the purposeful deception regarding this whole thing, because again, the Pfizer documentation regarding these shots and the initial studies regarding those in the trials was supposed to be all hidden for 70 some odd years. 
Well, that's not an accident, Robert Malone. That's a giant intentional. That's purposeful. So what's the motive? The motive, ladies and gentlemen, always gets to be something as plain and simple as depopulation. And that's what this is. And unfortunately, again, that's not going away. So I'll end with this, and this has to do again with insurance. Our Michigan business friend texted this to me the other day also, and here's what they said. This also spilled back into, of course, the story regarding their friend's sister who took the fake COVID test and had that, uh, you know, that swab crammed into their brain to then ultimately have all of those health problems and then have facial surgery and surgery on their skull to stop the bleeding. Here's what they said. They said, I started thinking about how much money has been made off my friend's sister. Insurance billed for unwanted PCR test, entire week in ER, extreme surgery, stitches and staples, more COVID tests while in ER, prescription pain pills, two more trips to ER, blood tests, urine tests, more meds, back to ER for staples removed. Now the lupus diagnosis, which she has an appointment with a specialist, quote-unquote, on Thursday. Easily $100,000 and counting, all stemming from an unwanted PCR that she was forced to take to get a birth control refill. What an effing scam. Then they said, my friend, the insurance agent, said that technically everyone who got the jab, insurance is allowed to deny all claims associated with it because it's experimental drug. People who sign up for medical trials and have side effects won't be covered unless the clinical trial is quote-unquote federally insured. The COVID clinic trials were federally, federally insured, but once it released to the public under EUA, it's not. She said she thinks they're going to pull the rug out from under everyone and start denying all the claims, which explains why the media started saying nobody forced you to take it. They later said this. They said, I was just thinking, in order to try to collect money from the government, you have to prove it was the shot. In order for all insurance to deny you, all they have to do is point to the shot, and it's a list of side effects. There's no way to win such a scam. Maybe that's why the list of side effects was 30 pages long, so they could deny all the claims. And then they said 100% uh, to a comment I made, again, about it being. A depopulation agenda. And they said, what a great method for population control. Jab everyone with poison, then deny them what they keep have deny them when they keep having heart attacks and clots. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. There's no way that the insurance company can stay afloat unless they start denying these claims. They're just not going to be able to. Again, yes, they're losing customers. Yes, they're raising premiums because they're losing customers. And they're already living customers and still living customers are getting sick. Because again, if they've taken the shot, the insurance company already knows that. All of this is already on a giant database where everybody can already see this. So th there's really no avoiding it. You walk into a doctor's office, the doctor knows whether or not you've taken the shots. It's all right there on their computer paperwork. But once they start denying claims, or they even deny the fact that the reason that they are injured is because of the shot. I mean, 
you would have to have direct proof, and I'm not sure that I'm not sure the doctors in the hospitals, and certainly not the nurses, are going to want to think for a minute that the thing that they gave you was the cause as to why you keep returning. I just don't think they're going to want to. They're not going to want to fess up to that one in the slightest. But again, time is going to tell on all of this without a doubt. I just feel like. Yes, you know, there's a number of things being revealed, which is fantastic, but the slow roll of all of this is nauseating. It's just, it's clearly being controlled. You have no senators, for the most part, outside of Ron Johnson and occasionally Rand Paul saying anything. Very few representatives. In fact, the ones that uh, Andy Biggs was one of them too, and Matt Gates, like I said, and there were a couple other guys at the end of the table there that I recognized that were there for just a second. But you know, they, they were in and out rather quickly. They were either there listening or they were just asking a couple of questions. And, you know, I, I don't know whether it was for political reasons or not, or they have real concerns. It's it's anybody's guess, I think. But it's undeniable as to what's happening at the local level. It's absolutely undeniable. And these politicians need to come back to the local level and start talking again to county commissioners. Because if I'm sending out all the emails that I've been sending out over the years and I'm not hearing a single peep back, well, there's your answer. Okay, that'll wrap it up. Make sure and check out the description below. Certainly not on YouTube because they don't let me do that over there. Not yet anyway. Um, You have to have, I guess, a certain amount of views or a certain amount of subscribers before they let you hyperlink anything in their description box. It's one of the reasons why I hate YouTube. But either way... um, all the other information, as usual, is on BitChute and, uh, and and Rumble and everywhere else where you can listen to the show. But again, if you want to take a look at that Kazarian Mafia, the God Eaters uh, presentation there that is on YouTube, it is fantastic, and I will link that in the description. Other than that, ladies and gentlemen, I'll catch you on Friday. Thanks for listening. Peace. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Make sure and check out AmericanEducationFM.com for more information. Take care and God bless.